Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Cover 2, a podcast on the Cleveland Browns. Hicks! Browns are going to win! Bayfield, end zone, Landry, touchdown! With Dan Kadar and Browns beat writer Nate Ulrich of the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. With Steve Dorshuk from the Canton Repository. fans now cover two a podcast on the cleveland browns hello everybody welcome back to the cover two podcast from the akron beacon journal which is part of the usa today network this is dan kadar from beacon journal joined by browns beat writer nate ulrich nate how's it going it's going pretty well dan i'm really curious to see what the browns are gonna do in Dallas, I guess in Arlington, Texas, but against the Dallas Cowboys, I'm just I just watched almost all of uh, Dallas's first three games before we uh, got on here together uh, to record, and um, I'm just kind of fascinated by this matchup. Me too. I mean, the Cowboys are one and two, but their their offense is extremely potent. So. We will get into that game here shortly. We're going to talk about some other Brown stuff as well. I should say off the bat, we probably sound different this week. In the past, Nate and I have done the very technologically expert recording style of me putting Nate on speakerphone and recording it with a a microphone. And I know that doesn't sound the best. So this week we are... We're trying to use Microsoft Teams and recording that. So if you hear us clicking or or anything like that, we apologize. But we're trying to make the audio sound better. So if it sounds good, let us know. If it, if you think it sounds worse, let us know that too. So that that's some some podcast housekeeping. I figured maybe after three years, I could actually try and try and make the audio a little better. But we'll see. We we might try something else in the future. But you know, maybe both of us are, are a little clearer now. So anyway, Nate, let, let's talk about where the Browns are at before we get to the game on Sunday against Dallas. And in particular, I think this kind of goes unnoticed somewhat nationally, but how clutch has Miles Garrett been in the last two weeks, especially when the game has been on the line? I know the tendency is to say, boy, Nick Chubb's great. Baker Mayfield's efficient. Um, the offensive line looks good, but I, I I tend to think, you know, besides locally, Miles Garrett being super clutch this year is being overlooked. What are your thoughts on Miles in in the last couple of weeks? Well, I think he is making those plays that we've talked about many times that he needs to make to truly be an NFL Defensive Player of the Year candidate. Um, You know, he's been in the conversation before. I think before the suspension, he was on the periphery of that uh, conversation. But, you know, when you're 
getting the strip sacks in key moments to really turn the tide for your team or help help your team secure a win. That's exactly the the type of big uh, game changing dynamic moments that you want out of your uh, defensive player of the year candidate. So I think that he's really inserted himself in that conversation uh, out of the gate this year. Obviously, the three sacks and three games is huge, but more important, the strip sacks, uh, one against the Bengals in a key moment, one against Washington that, you know, helped the Browns seal the win. And the one against Washington was even more impressive because against the Bengals, he made a great play, obviously, but he just, you know, he bats the ball down, not to minimize it, kind of bat, bats it out of Joe Burrow's hand and, and you know, obviously uh, Joe Jackson uh, recovered it at the one. But this play against Dwayne Haskins, he did it all. I mean, in the strip sack, the, the ball actually, I saw on the uh, rewatch, the ball comes down and Haskins kind of kicks it up. It, it goes off Haskins' feet. He kind of kicks it up in the air and then Miles gets hands on it. It bobbles a little. I think it goes off his face mask a little bit and then he secures it. So the strip sack and recovery, just a great play, a focused play. And yeah, I think he uh, he's taken it to the next level here. That was the next step for him. We knew he could get to the quarterback. You know, the pressures are there. We know he can sack the quarterback. But for him to deliver in the big moments and actually have these takeaway producing plays is exactly the step you wanted to see him take coming back from suspension coming off a huge contract extension in the summer. Yeah. And he's, he's certainly living up to that, that huge deal that he got. And, you know, it it was hard to project what he could improve on, but he's certainly doing that this year with, with these big time plays and going forward, I, I wouldn't be shocked at all if we see teams really, really making a point of, of double teaming him which will open things up, of course, for the rest of the defensive line. As a group, Nate, do you do you think the line, the de- defensive line, is is the best group on the team through three games? Because, you know, besides Miles and how well he's been playing, Sheldon Richardson just keeps showing up. Larry Ogunjobi seems to be good for at least one big splash play a game. I, I'm. Porter Gustin's inconsistent and Adrian Claiborne's kind of just, you know, pretty average. He's, he's not bad, but he's, he's not a big, huge playmaker, but then like the backups seem to be pretty good. Like I had friends texting me today, like Jordan Elliott is, is supposedly beloved by pro football focus right now. And he looks pretty good every time he's in there. Um, so stuff like that is that, is the defensive line group the best group on the team right now still? Well, I think the running backs are the best group with Nick Chubb and Kareem hmm. Hunt. True, yeah. Yeah, so the D-line might be runner-up. O-line's been playing pretty well, too. I mean, I think O-line is, is right in the conversation. I really do. So, you know, they're not perfect, but I think they've put some, some good games together. And Jedrick Wills, you know, he, he took some lumps against Washington, against a really good front. But, you know, I think overall the line's been good. And Wyatt Teller's been a breakthrough player at right guard. 
Jack Conklin came back off that ankle injury and you didn't hear him about him against Washington, which means he was doing his job, you know, for the most part and, and, and being that, you know, offensive lineman who's not garnering, garnering attention for, for the wrong reasons. So I, JC Treaders came in off knee surgery on August 13th and hasn't missed a snap. Joel Batonio's Joel Batonio, reliable Pro Bowl caliber guy. I, I think that O-line has has some say in this conversation. But, you know, the D-line, really, I mean, I think I might be giving them the nod if Olivier Vernon could stay healthy. I mean, that's been the big, big disappointment that has carried over from last year. Obviously, it's a different injury, but he's been out the last two games with the abdomen. So mm-hmm. I don't know if they're going to get him back. Uh, seems like he's had a setback. He, he had been limited and, and practice and everything and, and then gets shut down again. So, uh, you know, I don't know if he'll be back for Dallas, but that certainly would be a boost. Um, and, and then I think that we could have this conversation in a couple more weeks. And if, if Vernon's out there healthy, I would really love to see what Garrett could do with Vernon opposite of him, because we were talking about Garrett taking this next step and Vernon hasn't been out there for either of these two games where he's made these huge plays. I mean, Obviously, Garrett's getting it done without Vernon, but you would think that having Vernon out there, when you're talking about Garrett opening things up, you think you would think having Vernon out there would be that much more of a bonus. So that's kind of where I stand on this. You know, th- this is a, a good moment, I think, to point out that the Cowboys' offensive line is is really banged up. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with a lot of injuries. Their star left tackle. Uh, Tyron Smith hasn't played the last two games with a neck injury. So th- they're also juggling uh, the lineup over at, at right tackle right now. Uh, so it, it's really interesting because this is a high-powered offense, as you, as you said, Dan, first in the league in, in yards per game, 490.7. First in the league in passing offense, 383.3 yards per game. Dak Prescott's putting up these crazy numbers with these receivers. Of course, Ezekiel Elliott in the backfield. But that O-line is vulnerable right now with injuries that they're dealing with. And, um, you know, if Tyron Smith isn't back, that's going to be that's going to be huge. So especially if the Browns can get Vernon back. So there's there's going to be some interesting injury reports to watch beginning Wednesday this week. Yeah. And of course, Nate'll have all that up on on the website and on Twitter. He's at by Nate Ulrich and you can find our Brown stuff on our, our webpage, obviously. But um, let, let's talk about the game then. It is the best chance for a Browns win, this defensive line dominating in a game where the Browns secondary still has some issues, I think. And like you mentioned, the Cowboys offense, their passing offense in particular, is extremely potent. C.D. Lamb is one of the breakout rookies of the year. Um, is the best chance for Cleveland on Sunday, this defensive line making plays. I think that's part of it, but I, even if that's the case, <laughs> I just think the Browns are going to have to win a shootout. Hmm. And I don't know if they're ready to do that. I mean, offensively, they took basically the third quarter off, except for the last two plays. I mean, they snoozed through the third quarter against Washington. Which was shocking. Yeah. Uh, now they came to life right in the nick of time. I mean, it was total procrastination. 
but they they actually did it. They showed resilience. They pulled it out, and they came to life, and it was a crucial play. It was the turning point of the game, in my opinion. It was third and 12. I think the Browns were at their own 23, and they had just lost five yards on a Kareem Hunt run, an outside run that got shut down right away. And Baker Mayfield, who didn't, you know, light up Washington by any means, but was efficient enough and in the big moment did complete a 15-yard pass to Odell Beckham Jr. Beckham quietly had a really good game, I thought. Um, this, You know, the stat line wasn't great. Um, four catches, but I thought he made really big plays. And that was probably the signature one. Uh, so... They also struggled throughout that first half, Dan. I mean, I obviously, we know the story of the game now. The, obviously, the five takeaways the Browns had, three interceptions, two fumble recoveries. The Browns scored points off all, uh, all of those takeaways except for one that they couldn't score on. It was a fumble recovery as time expired in the first half. But they scored 24 points off turnovers, a touchdown off each of the three interceptions, had a field goal after a, the, the Miles Garrett strip sack to, to cushion their lead in the fourth quarter. So that was huge. I mean, you win the turnover battle 5 nothing. Baker Mayfield breaks his interception streak with an assist from Odell Beckham Jr., who broke up a, <laughs> a, what could have been an interception in the first half. So you win that turnover battle, um, and that helps you compensate for a lack of offensive firepower you were not a dynamic offense you actually were outgained in that game by washington if you're the browns you were outgained i think 309 to 300 300 yards even is all the browns had but they weren't electric or dynamic they were opportunistic obviously capitalize on those turnovers with touchdowns instead of field goals very efficient in the red zone to get that done so you know there's some criticism there uh, about struggling on offense throughout the first half for almost all of the third quarter doing nothing on offense. But there's also some positives, and, and that's being opportunistic, taking advantage of the short fields and scoring touchdowns off three of those uh, takeaways. Um, but all that is to say that I just don't know, you know, if, if you're facing a team like Dallas on the road, and by the way, interesting um dallas does have some fans in that in jerry's world um Mm -hmm. they had they've had one home game so far and that was their only win 40 39 went over the falcons in week two and the attendance was 21,708 so you know that's not (laughs) the crazy amount of fans that that place can hold right but it it's a it's a pretty big crowd i think it's the biggest crowd in the nfl during the pandemic and uh you know more than triple what the browns can have at their home games so that's an interesting thing to consider and you know you're going to be playing there you're going to be playing a team that we know can score and put up all these numbers even with offensive line trouble and the the matchup that the browns might be able to exploit there i still think the cowboys are going to be able to put up a lot of points and it's just a matter if the browns can keep up and they certainly i don't think against the Cowboys can afford to have these lulls like they did against Washington. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but let me just start with, with the most important 
thing, the most important takeaway from from this idea, and I think you're right on the money. We've we've talked about how improved the offensive line is. We've talked kind of ad nauseum about how loaded the Browns' offense is, how great the running game is. Odell Beckham's still Odell Beckham. Jarvis Landry's really good. They gave Austin Hooper a huge deal. Harrison Bryant just scored his first touchdown, and he looks promising. So if the Browns cannot hang with Dallas in a shootout kind of game, isn't that a direct indictment on Baker Mayfield? Yes. I mean, I think it is to some extent, but I don't think it's like the final verdict on him, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's to say that he's new in this system and he's got to get better if the Browns are going to be able to win uh, in this kind of game. Now, obviously, you can say that 35 to 30 against the Bengals is winning a shootout, but... um, it's the Bengals. It's the Bengals, right? You know, so, <laughs> uh, and I, and I think Joe Burrow is going to be really good, and he was impressive in that game. But mm-hmm. they're obviously a team building, a team coming off a year with what two wins and the first overall pick for for that reason. So, yeah, I mean, has Baker put the the Browns on his shoulders and, and led him to a win? Um, certainly not this year. So is he ready to do that? I mean, we haven't seen signs of it yet. We've seen this offense so far look like really what we thought it would in many ways. And, and, and that's leaning on what I said is the, the best position group on the team. Those two running backs, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. Trying to let Baker, you know, be efficient try to encourage Baker and set Baker up to take care of the ball, try to allow him to make plays in the play-action passing game, Um, and specifically the the play-action, you know, bootleg game uh, that you see in this this scheme. And and they did that against the Bengals. They didn't do it nearly as much against Washington. Washington uses those uh, wide nine technique defensive ends and Alex Van Pelt even said on the Thursday before the game that you know the Browns probably aren't going to be able to do that uh, those you know designed rollouts off play action with Baker uh, like like they would prefer to because of the scheme that Washington uses how they line up their ends but that that creates some opportunities in the running game so that would be okay and you know as, as the as the game wore on you saw Nick Chubb wear him down and the Browns offensive line wear him down and Nick Chubb had a really good day. So all that's to say that, you know, the Browns have won in different ways. Obviously, I think I wrote about this actually Sunday night, that they took a step under Stefanski by by winning in an unexpected way uh, against Washington in a different way where they're not using that bread and butter, uh, you know, play action bootleg game a lot like they did against Cincinnati where they're not, you know, uh, having really a, a great offensive day where, like I said, there were those lulls, but they were able to step up defensively with the takeaways and then capitalize on them. And it, it just wasn't what I think a lot of us, I know for sure myself was expecting to see Sunday. It just, it, it looked a lot different. It felt a lot different, but they, they found a way and, and they fell behind. They rallied um, in the first half. They, they, 
fell behind and rallied in the in the second half, and then they finished. And I've I've seen so many Browns teams in previous seasons that complain about how they play well, they play well, and then they just can't find a way to finish. This team found a way to finish. Miles Garrett was a big part of the finishing, um, and you know they, they uh, I think that's a sign of growth and and a sign of progress and a sign that they're talent more talented for sure than they have been in previous years and, and I think the talent came through on that third and 12 we're talking about and then the Miles Garrett's strip sack and uh certainly many other plays but I guess Dan I'm rambling all this is a way to say that <laughs> yeah I think they're gonna have to win a shootout and uh, we're gonna have to see Baker Mayfield at his best um, and playing certainly better and more efficient than he has without any of these funks that the offense had, had, you know, showed us on Sunday against Washington. Yeah. And boy, it sure sounds like the way you're describing things, not to use a, a terrible sports cliche, but it really sounds like it could be a statement game for the Browns, obviously, but Baker Mayfield specifically. And I, I think this game could go a long way in shaping what the narrative of him is. Is he really a a really good NFL quarterback? Is he a game manager quarterback? Or is he a guy the Browns have to start thinking about a little bit going forward? And and whether or not he is the guy. So I I think this game is going to, it's going to be really telling for, for where they're at now. One of the other things you mentioned, Nate, was that third quarter where the Browns just slept walk through the whole thing. We've seen that a lot in the past, and I haven't had a chance to go through all of the, the quotes and, and interviews following the game, but was that a discussion point for Kevin Stefanski or anybody else? What's the what's the thought behind why they were so flat in the third quarter against Washington? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it. Um and there was definitely an admission that was the case. I mean, they couldn't hide from it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, there was no great explanation as to, to why they were so flat. I mean, they were playing a really good defensive front. And, uh, you know, I think we saw that now. They were helped by Chase Young, obviously, being hurt yes. early in the game, ruled out in the se- early second quarter. I think that certainly made a huge difference uh, as the game wore on. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just know that they, they just can't afford to do that. I, you know, Baker with a, I think believed that he had the intentional grounding, um, and then took a sack. You know, and those were, if I'm not mistaken, let me see here. Yeah, those were, those were, on the uh, the three and out to start the uh, third quarter. That was the intentional grounding. And then he took a sack to begin the next series, which ended up being another three and out. So those are moments where, yeah, I mean, that he really uh, kind of beat himself up after the game. I asked him about his interception streak ending, and he kind of gave me like, oh, thanks a lot. Like, thanks for reminding <laughs> me that I had that interception streak. But I said, oh, well, I mean, obviously, is it a weight off your shoulders to have played that clean game? that you've been seeking obviously with an assist from Odell and you know he was smiling and laughing a little bit and said that Odell had made a great play with that breakup that we're talking about and 
he he also said in the key line for Baker was, yeah, I could have played a lot better. And I think those sequences that we're talking about really were things that were eating at him. So, yeah, I mean, we, we they need better out of him, first and foremost, to win the style of game I think that they're going to have to be in you know, in Dallas, the, that that shootout type game. I mean, that's just what the Cowboys have been involved in here uh, this season, weeks two and three. Um, the opener against the Rams wasn't, I mean, that wasn't very high scoring, but these last two games against the Seahawks and the Falcons have, have been shootouts, and I, the Browns have scored more than 30 points, or 30 or more points. Um, and... Yeah, they've what have they scored? Thirty-five and thirty-four. Mm-hmm. So they've scored at least thirty points in consecutive games for the first time since two thousand ten. Which but is that crazy. still doesn't convince me they can win a shootout because one was <laughs> against the Bengals and then Washington. They had five takeaways. So right, <laughs> you know you, you can't rely on that. Now Dallas is bad in the turnover differential. We went over that. What are they, Dan? Minus four? Yep. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the Browns can get a couple more takeaways and win the turnover battle on this one, and I I think they'll need to do that um, to really have a chance to to keep up because, as we know, there are problems in this linebacking core. There are problems in the secondary of the Browns, and Dak Prescott is going to be able to uh, do what he wants to a large extent through the air and on the ground, which I think is a huge factor in this game. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's go over a couple quick hitters before we get out of here on, on this week's podcast. Uh, I think I just called it a show podcast because I was going to say show, uh, but this is a podcast, whatever. Uh, be that as it may, um, let, let's go over some quick things. Richard Higgins, what yeah. the hell's going on there? Uh, why why can't he be active? Uh, is this more Kadero Hodge just being the preferred guy? Is this a Richard Higgins issue? Well, I think it's a Kadero Hodge being the preferred guy. Um, it's interesting because in training camp that became apparent. And then Kadero Hodge missed like a week for personal reason. Hmm. And when he came back, he was automatically the number three receiver again. And the snap counts in the first two games weren't even close. He was clearly the number three receiver. And then obviously in the third game, Rashard Higgins was a healthy scratch. If And then when it comes to Higgins being that guy, you know, that they might keep up, the problem he has is he just doesn't play special teams. So he played two special team snaps against the Ravens. He didn't play any against the Bengals. And then he's a healthy scratch against Washington. Hmm. Now, with JoJo Natson suffering that torn ACL, he's going to be out for the season, suffered on a punt return against Washington, second quarter. I think we're going to get to see Donovan Peoples-Jones. He was inactive. He was a healthy scratch the first three games. A rookie six-round pick from Michigan. A lot of people excited about his potential. Haven't seen him out there yet. I think now he can step into a return role for the Browns. Dearness Johnson, obviously another candidate. He's a guy who filled in on kickoff and punt return after JoJo was hurt Sunday. So I don't know that this really means that Higgins is going to be active 
all of a sudden just because JoJo's hurt. <laughs> I could see a, a swap Donovan Peoples-Jones for JoJo. And, uh, you know, Higgins might be on that side looking in again. I mean, he's a valuable guy if, if Odell Beckham Jr. or Jarvis Landry gets hurt for the Browns. But, I mean, you don't want that, obviously. That would be horrible. But, you know, you got to have some depth, and, and Higgins is there for that. But because he doesn't play special teams, it makes it more difficult for him to be a factor um, where he, with where he's at in the pecking order right now. Mm-hmm. Boy, that, that's a great point you make about that. I hadn't even thought about, you know, that at all. But now that you mentioned it, I recall seeing Kaderil Hodge down on the uh, coverage teams and maybe not making plays, but just being there. So he, he is getting snaps on on special teams. So you Oh, think, yeah. He's like yeah. one of Mike Prefer's favorite guys. Huh. Kaderil well, Hodge is a big-time special teamer. Hopefully, Mike Prefer doesn't get to use him too much because if that's the case, it means Kaderil Hodge is, is developing as a as a pretty good wide receiver. But do you think that do you think it's Donovan Peoples Jones for sure filling JoJo Natson's role, or do you think someone like Dearness Johnson could get another look at that? Well, it could be Dearness. I mean, he did it in game, mm-hmm. but. And and that's the thing. I don't get to watch practice now. We're shut right. off during the regular season. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I can't tell you what Donovan Peoples-Jones' development has been like. But I just know that he's, when they do the the return stuff, it, it, it was those three. And now, obviously, JoJo's out for the year with ACL. So I would think Peoples-Jones would have a, a good chance. The door is open. But, you know, I don't know if Prefer would just rather go with the Ernest at this point. They yeah. drafted Peoples-Jones because they liked a lot about him in the sixth round in terms of potential as a receiver. But certainly he's attracted to them because of his return uh, history as a, as, a, as a guy who brought punt, punts back in a dynamic way for Michigan. And, and the thing Prefer's been teaching him is the kickoff return aspect of it this year. So... I just want to say one more thing about Kadero Hodge. If you look at his snap, he's always double-digit snap counts and special teams. So he's just not the number three receiver. He's a, he's a core special teamer. Hmm. And if you want evidence, if you don't, if you need some more evidence other than me telling you what it looks <laughs> like at training camp and, and the snap counts, Kevin Stefanski picks one game captain each week, and he made Kadero Hodge the game captain against Washington. So – he is a darling of this coaching staff. Yeah, sure sounds and it. They didn't so. bring him in either. Right. You know, but, but you know, obviously Prefer was there. Um, and and that makes a difference, uh, you know, when it comes to him being identified as a key special teams player. But he's obviously endeared himself to the head coach as well, who's, who's handpicking these uh, game captains each week. Yeah, uh, all I know is before the season started, my friend texted me saying, who the hell's Kadero Hodge? And I said, you know, I I don't know a ton about him, but he's certainly proving, as you're pointing out, to be a valuable piece of, of this team. And that, yeah, that's and, good, good to see. And it's not just blocking. And, and the other thing is the, the number three receiver, Stefanski was asked a couple weeks ago about, or maybe it was just last week, about, 
blocking. Is he really just the number three receiver because of his blocking? And he said, no, he does a lot of good stuff for us. I mean, he only has three catches for 51 yards. But, I mean, is a number three receiver on a on a team with Beckham Landry and then Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt and Austin Hooper, uh, Harrison Bryant, David Njoku, obviously been out with the injury, but he's down on the list of, of, of guys you would expect to get the ball. But, I mean, I think he, considering that, you'll take 17 yards per catch from him. Mm-hmm. Last thing, unless you have more stuff, I, mean, I don't want to get too into defensive snap counts because they're they're often like indicative of what the offense is doing on the opposing team or players like Mac Wilson coming back from injury. He got six snaps against Washington. I think that's fine. I think we'll probably see more than that against Dallas, but I believe Ronnie Harrison only had six snaps. At what point do you do you wonder what's going on here with him? Is he, he having a hard time learning the playbook? Is he just not that good? Um, I, the, the amount of snaps he has gotten, I know he's new to the system and he's learning it and all that. But at this point, by week three, I would have thought he would have been a bigger factor for for the defense. Is he what, what's the deal with Ronnie Harrison? Do you know? No, I don't really, because I don't think that it's not that he's no good. Like, I, I don't buy that, you know, they traded for him. He comes here and they're like, oh, geez, he just isn't very good. We just, I agree. Yeah. I think I think to me, and I mean, this is speculation. I'll admit it. I'm not reporting this, but I would think that it would be. He's trying to learn the system, <laughs> which is I, I don't I don't think they're turned off by him as a player. I think they they, they identified a skill set. I, I think Andrew Barry, Joe Woods. Probably liked him a lot at Alabama coming out when he came out a couple of years ago and then continued to like him as a player in Jacksonville. And I don't think he gets here and just suddenly loses his ability as a player, but when you're thrown into a, a new team, a new system, it can be hard for some guys to get up to speed, you know? So I think that's what, what's going on here. He did play, I think, nine total snaps coming into week three, and then seven of the 65 snaps for 11%. Wow. So he's barely played. Um, Andrew Sandejo and Carl Joseph, the starting safeties, played all 65 snaps against Washington. Obviously, Carl Joseph had the the big interception that opened mm-hmm. the floodgates for the defense and all those takeaways. Uh, but in my mind, Sandejo leaves a lot to be desired. Here's the other thing about Sandejo. He knows Joe Woods very well. He knows the defensive Backs coach very well. They were with him in Minnesota. He also knows Stefanski well. They were, he was again with him in Minnesota. And I just think that they trust Sandeo to be where he's supposed to be. And maybe he's going to get beat. He's going to give up some plays. We've seen that already, especially in the opener. I think he had a rough opener against Baltimore. But I think that they... They feel comfortable that he knows this system as well as anybody, and they trust him right now. So 
he's going to be out there apparently. And you know, I think that that's the big obstacle to getting Ronnie Harrison more time. Now, are they going to employ the big nickel package where they have three safeties or three safeties in a dime package that Joe Woods likes to run? That was the plan with Grant Delpit, right? The plan with Grant Delpit was, even though we have these two veteran safeties in Sandejo and Joseph that we signed as free agents, we drafted Delpit in the second round because he's going to be a big part of our plans, a big contributor. His versatility allows us to play the three safety packages even when there's two safeties, he's probably going to play a lot. He's probably going to play all the time. He's probably going to play more than Sandejo if he can get up to speed as a rookie in a unique year with no real offseason and all that stuff. But then he blows out his Achilles, ruptures it during training camp, and then you're just kind of rethinking your whole safety group. You trade for Ronnie Harrison, and he hasn't been able to get out there and be that Grant Delpit replacement yet. Um, will he ever be? I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm sure um, not going to assume that they think he's as versatile as Grant Delpit. I've asked a lot about that. Nobody's really vouched for his versatility on the level that they vouched for Grant Delpit's versatility. Mm-hmm. Um but I still think they liked a lot about Ronnie Harrison. I don't think he comes to Berea, starts practicing, and loses his ability. Denzel Ward actually said that Harrison had an interception in his first practice with the Browns. And Mac Wilson, who was a teammate of his at Alabama, keeps saying that this guy has so much to offer. And you know Denzel Ward was glowing about him too. So players know players, and I think that there's definitely talent there. But coaches are concerned about, is this guy going to be where he's supposed to be? Is he going to be communicating on the back end like we need him to? I think that they think that Sandejo, although obviously an older player and maybe not as uh, you know dynamic um, as you would like at, at, at the position back there, uh, physically, it you know, mentally he's got it down. So that's, that's where the edge is. And, uh, that's my analysis and speculation <laughs> as to what's going on with Ronnie Harrison. <laughs> yeah, no, all that makes sense. And I, I believe it to be fully correct. My feeling about Anderson Deho is though, he's like a really good backup quarterback where, you know, he's going to know the offense and he can help his teammates know, or the defense, I guess he's going to know the defense and he's going to help his teammates understand and, and learn the defense. And he can probably fill in and be okay, but you certainly don't want him to be your, your starter all the time. And then that's how I feel about Anderson Deho. I, he's obviously really smart. I, I would guess he goes into coaching after his career. Not really knowing much about the guy personally, but, He's just a smart player, and like you said, he, he knows how to make the calls and be in the right place, usually. It's just some athletic limitations, and I don't know. I, I, I like Ronnie Harrison quite a bit. I liked him at Alabama. He, he played a, a decent amount there, if I recall correctly. So, yeah, I don't know. I, it's not to be a slight on Anderson Deho, 
I think there's a spot for him on the team. I just don't think it should be as a starter. Um, yeah, I mean, he's an every-down guy. I mean, right. what I neglected to say was that when I mentioned that Sandeo and Joseph played all the snap counts, only one other player on defense did, and that was Terrence Mitchell at corner. Mm-hmm. He's been playing well. So, you know, <laughs> he's not just a starter, Dan. Sandeo's out there every snap. So, right. You know, and, and when you're talking about the plan for him, like ideally he's he's not a starter every down guy. Again, I, I agree, but I guess to give the Browns a little bit of a break here, I don't think that was the plan. I think the I think maybe maybe it was a contingency if Delpit wasn't ready to roll, uh, you know, 100% snap count type guy right out the bat as a rookie. Mm-hmm. But I think really it, this is a result of the, the Delpit injury. And although they made the move, trading a, a, a fifth-round pick in next year's draft to, to acquire Harrison on September 3rd, we haven't really seen it pay off yet. You know, they had they did make that move to compensate for the loss of, of Delpit, but obviously it hasn't worked out in their minds yet to where that they can plug this guy in and and really, you know, move forward with the plan that they had formulated with Delpit in mind. It, it's still something that's haunting them, that injury. Yeah, it is, and I, I think it will continue to be unless – Unless Harrison can learn the the playbook and, and really gets a significant amount of snaps, I mean maybe he doesn't become a every snap player like like Sandejo has been, but maybe they split him. I don't know. We'll yeah. see. And Mac Wilson injury is another one that's still haunting him, and he obviously got to play for the first time, but barely. Right. So we'll see if he if he gets to in Dallas. I do want to say before we go, I want to mention this. We talk about Baker Mayfield and we talk about Miles Garrett mm-hmm. and trying to be in the number one overall picks and in the you know consecutive drafts and trying to lift the Browns on each side of the ball and how I think Baker's going to have to be at his best and certainly show more firepower than he has this season. I mean, he's only what, attempted 23 passes in the past two games. You know what I mean? I just think a lot's going to be on his shoulders if it's a shootout like I think it will have to be against Dallas. Yep. Miles, obviously, you need him to continue to make these plays um, that we, we opened up with. And all this is a way to say that they're going back home. I mean, yep. that's a storyline that is going to carry throughout the week. Uh, Baker Mayfield uh, from Austin, Texas, going to play uh, the Cowboys for the first time uh, in Arlington in Jerry's world, which, again, will have more fans than the Browns have been used to playing in front of this season. And then Miles Garrett's from Arlington. So um, I'm sure these guys are going to be really uh, juiced up and jacked up and whatever you want to say. They're going to be fired up. (laughs) (laughs) These guys are going to be very eager for this. Um, And it's not going to be the same because of COVID. There's not going to be the full stadium. But I still think it's going to be really special for both those guys. Oh, for sure. I mean... The Cowboys are are the team on a global level in the NFL, and for for these local guys to go play in this basically football palace, uh, it's going to be something. It's you know Baker Mayfield has been a lot more reserved this season than he has been in the past. I'll be interested to see you know if he's a little more fired up 
in, in this game and coming out and and all that kind of stuff. But we'll see. Um, but that that is going to do it here on cover two. We're going to have some predictions later in the week from our full team that covers the Browns. That includes Nate, Marla Ridenauer, Steve Dorshuk, and George Thomas. The, the, that crew has been really doing some great work this season so far. So we hope you've been checking it out and enjoying it and all that kind of stuff. Make sure you're following Nate on Twitter. He's at by Nate Ulrich. But that's going to do it here for our podcast today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you next time.